You're listening to The Healthy Sensitive. there and welcome everybody to the healthy sensitive a podcast for highly sensitive beatniks and creative renegades and introverts and philosophically minded people and nerds and i say that with the most abundant of love <laughs> i'm leah burkhart your hostess on the show and uh don't let my yippy skippy tone of voice fool you. I'm actually going to be talking about some challenging things today, you know, to be different. Um, <laughs> uh, I want to talk about purpose. At least that's the overall arching theme that I'm kind of diving into. It was the last time that I did an episode, it was on this idea of your something larger, you know, getting connected with whatever your something larger is. And What's interesting is I did that episode and got some questions from folks who were sort of asking, well, but how does one find their something larger? And there was a few people that asked, and I thought, oh, that seems like a worthwhile question to dive into. And then on top of that, in a seemingly unrelated stream of thought, or I guess a seemingly unrelated experience, I recently did a workshop on navigating burnout. And... In that workshop, I talked about tools that are known to help and, you know, what exactly is burnout. And I also specified why it might be the case that highly sensitive people uh, might be more prone to burnout than the average person, which does not by any stretch of the imagination mean that highly sensitive people are special in that regard or they're unique in their ability to experience burnout, just that they often will reach that place a little bit more frequently. And uh, yeah, so there was that. And in that workshop, after talking about tools and uh, different sort of philosophies or, or questions to pose for oneself to navigate burnout, someone at the end of that workshop said, yeah, but what if I've done all that and I'm still burned out? And I had some answers, but even as I was answering them, we were sort of short on time. And I knew, of course, the answer to that question could have gone on for an additional hour if everybody had been willing to put forth that kind of time. But that's the irony of burnout, of course. It's like, you know, when you're really and truly burned out, the last thing you want to do is spend an additional hour on a weekend day talking more about burnout. So anyway, the just, so just to kind of rewind, and I know I've talked about burnout before. I've brought it up on several of my podcasts, and it's coming up a lot right now for obvious reasons. But to be clear, burnout, for those who haven't been listening to the previous podcast episodes, it's a state of mental, physical, and emotional exhaustion brought on by excessive and continuous stress. Uh, another way of framing it or putting it that I think might even be more uh, accessible for folks is it's simply the inability or the impaired ability to experience positive emotions. So you can understand why burnout and depression would be so yeah, interrelated. Uh, they're they're quite frequently they are used in exchange of one another, inexchangeably. Yeah, anyway, so kind of 
stop for a minute and let's think about that. Burnout is the inability to experience positive emotions. So what that's going to mean is even when you have really positive experiences or experiences that you've identified as being positive in the past, all of a sudden you're at the crossroads where the same kinds of experiences are not bringing forth that the same measure of joy that used to be so reliable in the past. Uh, maybe going on a run or a hike or you know, those are the kinds of things that I love to do, but I've been in those circumstances where, I mean, it just, I had to crawl out of bed to do that thing because I thought, well, but this is reliable. I can rely on this thing to get me out of the trenches. And all of a sudden it's not working in the same way that I'm accustomed to. That's burnout or potentially depression. Again, they're often, in, they often are, well, they're very, at the very least they're related I would even go so far as to say that they're frequently spouses. <laughs> um, it's rare for someone to come to the fold and say, I'm depressed, and then not discover a certain measure of burnout is involved. Not exceedingly rare. It's not like it never happens, but they are quite often correlated. So anyway, in the workshop, and I'm going to do a review here, and a lot of this stuff might be stuff you've already heard, if you have, just... I don't know, tune out for a minute. <laughs> I want to talk really briefly again about the kinds of things that are known to help with burnout, just for some context. So things that are known to help. Connecting with other people. Now this piece is kind of counterintuitive, especially for most highly sensitive people, primarily because most highly sensitive people are also introverts, uh, not all. So if I, approximately 70% of highly sensitive people, or at least those who have identified themselves as such, uh, have all, will also report that they are introverts. 30% though, which is a sizable amount, will say they identify as being extroverts, which means they get fed from being around other people. But this is a little, this, this gets less, this gets murky pretty quickly. A lot of people assume that if you are an introvert, then ipso facto, it means you don't like being around other people. And that's not true. I often use the analogy of a, like a, uh, like if you're trying to cook something. In my view, and in my experience, and I'm of course open to being wrong about this because, well, <laughs> obviously I haven't met every human on the planet. I'm an introvert. I wouldn't have even tried. <laughs> but... We all human, all of us humans, so far as I can tell, and with very rare exception, have the same ingredients we all need to achieve satisfaction, a sense of true uh, contentment. It's just that the recipe is different for each of us. So as an example, let's imagine that uh, we all have the same ingredients. So flour, eggs, sugar, uh, butter, and chocolate chips. I mean, one can make a chocolate chip cookie out of that, but maybe someone else uses a different amount of chocolate chips because they want to have more chocolatey chip morsels, or maybe someone else uses less flour, or maybe someone else uses less butter or more butter and so on. I mean, that's the most simplified analogy uh, ever, but <laughs> the idea is this. We all have the same ingredients that we need to thrive but we all need those ingredients in different amounts and measures in a way that is unique to our own recipe for joy and satisfaction. 
And that recipe isn't even consistent all throughout our lives. I know it isn't, hasn't been consistent all throughout mine. There have been chapters in my life where I have just craved silence, solitude, slowness, and just isolation. I mean, I, when people think, say, oh, but what if you're on a deserted island? And I think, oh, if only. <laughs> and there have been times in my life when I've been starved for connection, for the sense of belonging that comes with being a part of a community. So there's no one size fits all, even for one person consistently all throughout their lives. So having said all of that, uh, a lot of people who are introverts, are it's presumed that they don't like being around people when in fact they do. They, however, just need, they, they need people just like extroverts need people. They just need a little bit less of that interaction and they tend to appreciate a different type of interaction than extroverted people do. So just to give a quick example of that, extroverts will often report that any type of connection with a person feels on some level good. It feels nice, even when it's just chit-chat at a networking gig, or when it's just a, you know, hey, how's the weather kind of conversation. For your average extroverted type, for them, you know, introverts will often be very, you know, judgy wedgy was a bear and say things like, oh, I just can't stoop so low as to have those shallow conversations. And I've certainly been guilty of said judgment. (laughs) And it's true. I don't, it's not that I thoroughly dislike it or hate it or can't tolerate it. It's just not the thing that's going to feed me. It's the thing I'm willing to do to get to the juicy part of the conversation that will feed me. So for many introverts, and again, not all, many though will say they get excited once the conversation steers toward a bit more depth. Um, You know, when suddenly the conversation turns toward, you know, what brings you meaning in life or, you know, philosophy or let's talk about our favorite books or... You know, when it gets into the realm of the, the deep stuff, most introverts suddenly start to turn on. And can, it's not that extroverts are incapable of having those kinds of conversations either. It's just they tend to prefer, well, it's not even that they necessarily prefer. It's that for them, that's one part of a vast tapestry of what can provide satisfaction in a conversation. So from their perspective, it's it doesn't really matter whether the conversation is about the weather or about the meaning of life. For your average extroverted person, they'll say, I just love being around other people and I like the experience of see- seeing and being seen. And if that you know, manifests in a conversation about the weather, that's just as valuable as a conversation about the meaning of life. So I feel, I'm sure you're thinking this is a tangent, but what I'm really trying to say here is we all need connection. The only exception might be sociopaths. We all thrive when we get that sense of connection. And so when we are burned out, it's probably even true of extroverted people, but more so for introverts. So as again, that means 70% of HSPs are going to fall into this camp where it can be counterintuitive. I'm so burned out. I can't imagine having to get up and go out and see people. I can't imagine picking up the phone and having to engage in a conversation over said phone. That sounds like it will be exhausting. But sometimes that's exactly what we need. Sometimes counterintuitively, the the thing that will most likely 
massage the the tight spots of our heart space will be a, a conversation where you say to a beloved friend or a family member, I'm really tired and I don't know what to do. And I need someone who can offer me some perspective. And I need someone outside of me who can look at me and maybe offer guidance or at least, if nothing else, just a pat on the head and a, yeah, man, I'm really sorry, that sucks. <laughs> like, that in and of itself, it's it's in the data. So this isn't just hooey stuff where I get to say, oh, hope, dreams, and love, that'll make all the difference. We can track it. We can see the changes that come about when we engage in conversation with people we care about, especially when said conversation is a fulfilling one where someone's offering compassion and empathy. And you can watch on a brain scan as people's, you know, as, as we start to produce oxytocin. Oxytocin, for those who, you know, aren't nerding out like I am around this stuff, is the cuddle hormone. It's the thing that gets produced when we feel like we have that sense of connection. So when we are burned out, sometimes one of the best things we can reach for is the telephone. Especially now, because we're in a pandemic and reaching for an actual hug sometimes isn't accessible. You know, hashtag pandemic. Okay, moving on. Uh, Another thing that can be helpful, having a creative outlet. So I think the line is, uh, oh, take your broken heart and turn it into art. Yeah, that's what it was. An actress coined the phrase, and now, of course, the name of the actress is escaping me, but the concept is translatable. It's simply, you know, when you feel like you're in a dark, dark space, the irony of, well, not irony, the, the upside to depression, which is something I've also spoken about, and I'm more than happy to speak about again at length. You know, depression comes with some, some nuggets of delight. One thing that depression carries with it in terms of its benefits includes empathy. You may or may not, you know, have, like remember this, or this may or may not resonate with you might be a better way of saying it. But when we're really happy, we don't tend to be very empathetic. And that doesn't mean that we are incapable of practicing empathy when we're happy. It's more that it just doesn't really occur to us. We are so in the moment, baby. We're so here and now and everything is beauty and delight. I'm happy. If someone else around us is in this heavy sort of space, we almost instinctively kind of shy away and go, I don't really want to hang out with that girl. (laughs) And it's not out of malice. It's not a, ew, gross. It's almost more of just an energetic like when you see a battery or a battery, my God, a magnet, you know, how sometimes magnets just come together and other times maybe you've remembered playing with marbles that were magnetic, but you'd sort of roll them toward each other and they would repel. And, you know, it wasn't, that happens with humans too. And so when we are depressed, however, and by depressed, I mean sadness, it slows things down and it allows us to see the world a little differently. And this is part of why artists often get so much inspiration from the darker aspects of our emotional realms, because those dark emotions are rich with nuance uh, and, and texture. There's a lot of texture to sadness and depression. 
And so I often like to use examples from Inside Out. So if you haven't seen that movie, get on that immediately. There's a pandemic, folks. I mean, what else are you doing? (laughs) So in it, there's a main, there's a character, a young girl who's coming into puberty and her emotions are starting to, you're seeing inside of her head and within her headspace, there's, there are emotions, each emotion being represented by a character. So there is sadness and there's joy and disgust and anger and fear and so on. And, excuse me, not anger, uh, joy and sadness end up having to go on an adventure together within, again, within the confines of, uh, I can't remember the name of the girl, but within her brain, they're, they're trying to save her. They're trying to save their person. And you get to see sort of the, the strife and the angst that comes about in a child's mind as they're starting to blossom into a version of maturity. And sadness is, but joy tells sadness, okay, I'm going to draw a circle and I don't want you to leave the circle. I just want you to stay right here. You're not allowed to touch anything. And the reason for that is a solid one. For whatever reason, most recently, anytime sadness has touched a memory, the memory suddenly turns blue and sad. And and Joy, of course, is trying to keep her person jubilant and happy. And so she's sort of saying to sadness, all right, kid, we haven't figured out what the what's going on right now, so you just stay in the circle. Here's your circle. Don't move. And she's not practicing much empathy. She's just trying to be a problem solver. Yippee, skippy, productive, all the things. And, you know, at one point when sadness sort of bumbles around out of her circle, Joy then tries again and says, well, here, here, read a book. Here's some long-term memory information. Read that. And when you're the observer, you know, the audience, that just seems like another cute way to try and keep sadness occupied. But the science of that is super interesting. When we are sad, we have a better memory. Our memory recall tends to be better. So we are better keep, better able to practice empathy and compassion, and we remember things more clearly and vividly. So this is part of why, going around in a full circle now, uh, having a creative outlet can be so important. It allows us to channel all of those difficult emotions and experiences that we're having into something beautiful. And it allows us in those moments of you know, that slow, steady, rich, textured uh, moments, we, we can record them in some capacity. Whether that recording them means that we're writing it in a book or maybe putting it, I don't know, in a podcast or <laughs> it can be painting it, it can be dancing it out on the dance floor, it can be bending it into a yoga pose. Whatever creativity means to you, having a creative outlet is very helpful if you happen to be in a place of burnout. Okay, so the next one is nourishment. So nourishing food, and just to keep things real simple here, it's balancing your blood sugar. So having something with protein along with something that has some fiber and trying to do that at regular intervals throughout the day. So for some people, I call them my camels. Regular intervals means... Like, I don't care if you are an intermittent faster or you like only three meals or whatever. Whatever you eat and whenever you eat, have something with protein. So that's nuts and seeds. It can be beans and legumes. It can be dairy if you can tolerate it. Uh, you can, you know, eggs if you eat eggs. 
If you're omnivorous, it also means poultry and meat. So there you have it. Fish also, great source of protein. And then the fiber part is all of your plant stuff. Fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, also nuts and seeds. You know, you're going to get some fiber from any of that stuff. If it comes from a plant, there's probably some fiber in it. And so you're trying to balance those two things to balance your blood sugar. Well, why would that help with burnout? Primarily because in terms of a physiological, you know, in terms of the physiology of how this all works, your adrenal glands are responsible for producing adrenaline and cortisol, which are the primary elements that are involved in keeping you vigilant in stressful times. If your body has to keep producing those hormones over and over and over, eventually it loses its capacity to do so at levels that we are requiring it to do. So then we just go kind of kaput. Well, if we're perpetually consuming protein, which helps nourish the adrenal glands, along with fiber, which often comes with foods that also have vitamins and minerals, and on top of that, that fiber is going to feed the bacteria healthy bacteria in our gut so that our gut which is also a part of our immune system becomes more robust it just helps the whole system to flourish so that's nourishing food and then also nourishing experiences you know being clear curating your experiences being really deliberate about the things that you expose yourself to you know watching wholesome videos instead of the news Uh, reading a book that you know brings you a sense of joy and not that which is going to bring you a further sense of cynicism. Which isn't to say that the news is bad or that having a book that has you question all of your surroundings is bad. That's all great stuff. But when you're exhausted, it can be much better to gravitate toward those things that bring you a measure of peace, tranquility, contentment, or joy. Okay, so now... After that, the next thing is having some kind of a growth exercise, so something that helps you to challenge yourself. It's engaging. And again, when you're burned out, that can seem like an impossibility, but it doesn't have to be something vast. Uh, in Brian Sexton's work, who he's a researcher, he's you know at Duke University, uh, he does his work on resiliency. One of the things he discusses is, you know, trying to cultivate hope when you feel like you're in despair. Well, one of the most reliable and sort of tangible ways you can go about cultivating hope is by way of achieving something um, and just doing something, anything. And when you go about doing that, uh, achieving the thing gives you the sense of, oh, I am capable. And that can start to snowball into the next thing, which then reminds you, yeah, that's right, I can do this, and this, and this, and this. And then that's what helps to support a sense of hope. I have hope now. So growth exercises are kind of that. And when I say growth, it doesn't have to be something like, you know, I'm growing who I am as a human. You're welcome to go there if you want to, but it doesn't have to be that big or vast or even important, I'm putting in quotation marks, it can be, you know, practicing Espanol through Duolingo. It can be uh, learning how to play chess. It can be um, getting out into the garden and just spending some time raking the leaves. I recently started playing chess with my one of my most favorite people on the planet. And the joy that came from that, what it I knew I enjoyed chess, but there was something special about this experience with this person. 
I get to do this thing that I love to do with this person whom I love. And, you know, the patience that he had as I was, he hadn't played chess before. So he was extremely patient as I'm walking him through how to do this thing. And he is extraordinarily competent. He's a a brilliant guy, very intelligent. And so for people like that, in my experience, it can be very difficult to kind of enter into the realm of beginner's mind. It doesn't feel comfortable to go from a place where you feel confident into the space where suddenly you're a neophyte, (laughs) like you're just totally new to this thing. And he just said, let's do it. And that's growth. That is engaging in a growth exercise. So it doesn't have to be, you know, trying to save the world or trying to make yourself a better person. It's just, what is something that you don't know how to do now and that you're curious enough about that you want to try? The next one is exercise and then the physical sense of that. Exercise, everyone hates to hear this, but it is probably one of the most reliable things you can do that will help to get you out of a burnout state. It helps on a physical realm. It helps you to create new neural connections in your brain. Uh, It, I mean, it really is sort of magical. It will help facilitate better sleep, which if you're getting good sleep, that's probably one of the best things you can do in order to, uh, you know, massage burnout out of your life or get yourself through a space of being burned out. And exercise doesn't have to be some, you know, like you're you're hitting the the pathway, you're just sprinting on the track and field. It can be dance. It can be, you know, a walk, especially when you're burned out. Because this is the thing too, particularly in America, at least, we have a terrible tendency to sort of be obsessive doers. You know, and if you're not achieving something, well, what the hell is the point of doing it? You don't have to go there. Movement, especially when you're burned out, gentle is often much better and much more productive. If you push too hard when you're already burned out, you'll actually do yourself more harm. You know, treat movement like a pretty nice stretch. Like, hmm, I haven't gone out for a walk in a while. I think I will do that. And not, I think I'm going to train for a marathon when I haven't been doing any movement at all. I mean, you can go there if you loved running and want to reintroduce that into your life. But don't feel like you have to. It should be a style of movement that feels like physical activity, not punishment. The body was built to move, so move it. And then speaking of exercise facilitating sleep, the final thing that's super helpful with regard to burnout is rest getting sleep. This is imperative for all of us. It is essential in particular when we're burned out and it is a non-negotiable when it comes to highly sensitive people. I often use the analogy that HSPs tend to be like smartphones. We've got a lot of capabilities. Uh, We've got some cool apps (laughs) that are sort of built into the the social, the software, if you will. But uh, if you don't charge the batteries of this thing, your smartphone is just a useless pile of Chinese imported crapola. Like that's all it is. It can't do anything for you. The functionality is only a possibility for you if you have charged the dang thing. So in that way, rest is imperative. And well, what kind of rest? I would say on average for highly sensitives, I'm follow the the algorithm, I guess the equation might be better that Elaine Aaron offers in her research where she says that highly sensitive people should be in bed for, for about eight to 10 hours every day. Now, that doesn't have to mean 8 to 10 hours of sleep. 
but you want to at least offer that larger window so that you can get the most amount of sleep possible. I would go so far as to say that that equation is true for anyone, highly sensitive or not, who is enduring a measure of burnout. Get in bed, rest. It is a powerful kind of medicine. So people who are burned out are generally speaking kind of feeling the way that most HSPs feel at the end of a long day. Uh, They'll start to feel more sensitive. They'll be more sensitive to stress uh, because they're producing stress hormones, which makes them more sensitive to that stress. So at any rate, I would say that for anyone who's trying to navigate burnout, getting a lot of rest, whether or not sleep comes to you, is very useful. So all of that is, I've spent half the time now talking about the thing that I was talking about before, which, you know, lol. (laughs) I uh, brought all of this to the table in my workshop. And I talked a bit about this in my episode on burnout. And also I alluded to it when I talked about the importance of having something larger last week. Because for those of you who might not know or don't remember, I often use the acronym STRONGER to kind of, when people don't remember all the, all the tools that they can draw upon to keep themselves nourished and, and vital. And so S is your something larger or a spiritual practice. T, or yeah, T is uh, your time in, your time to recharge. R is relationships. O is an outlet, N is nourishment, G is growth, E again is exercise, and R is rest. So last week, I really emphasized the something larger. And there then came the question of, but what if I don't know what my something larger is? And then that, to me, felt related to the question But what if I'm doing all of those things that you just talked about for the last 29 minutes, Leah, (laughs) and I'm still burned out. I'm so exhausted. I'm doing all the right things. And I just can't seem to get out of this hole. And in that space, often people will say, something larger? What the fuck are you talking about? I don't, I can't even comprehend what that would look like. You're asking me questions that I don't even know that I have the answer to on a good day. And this is not a good day. So what now? What do I do? Well, the first answer that I gave to the question that was posed to me, but what do I do if I'm doing all of the things and I'm still burned out? And my first answer was, well, have you tried just offering yourself a little bit of self-compassion? And I alluded to a conversation or a lecture, rather, by a psychologist, uh, Jordan Peterson, who, as a psychologist, had mentioned he had been in a conversation with a client who lamented that he was suffering from depression. And so naturally, as a a psychologist, he's not a psychiatrist, as he would, uh, said, tell me more. (laughs) And he said, well, my wife left me. Um, She took the kids and... Um, then I lost my job pretty shortly thereafter. And so I'm effectively homeless right now. I mean, I'm fortunate in that I I have a a roof over my head, but it's not a consistent one. And I'm just so tired. And I, I don't know that I can dig myself out of this thing. And Jordan Peterson's response, I mean, I'm sure he said it in the moment with a lot of compassion and, and softness and, and, you know, empathy. But when he's relaying this to his audience, he said, if this is anywhere near what you're going through, you're not depressed. 
your life just sucks. And of course, there's silence in the audience of like, what? That's it? That's what he said. And so he went, he, but he said, there should be some measure of relief that comes with that. What I'm trying to tell you is there's nothing wrong with you. You're just doing something that is appropriate. The feelings that you're feeling are appropriate. <laughs> you're not depressed. You're sad. And you're sad because your life is hard. Hard things often will make us feel sadness. That's okay. There's nothing that says that you need to feel happy all the time, especially when your life is hard. So the first thing that I said is, have you tried just standing still for a moment and saying, wow, this is really hard. I'm exhausted. And that's not necessarily doing a thing. I won't fix it necessarily. But that guides me into the realm where I'm going to start talking about this concept of first dart, second dart. The first dart, second dart concept came, I'm bringing that out from a book that I read called The Buddha Brain by, of course, I'm not going to remember his name, but hang in there and I will remember Dan something. Dan Martin. Ha! <laughs> Dan Martin, The Buddha Brain. He talks about this concept of, uh, here's an example. I walk at, I'm walking to my home and I had cleaned the house last night. And as I'm walking into my home, now it's a disaster. Why is it a disaster? Well, because my children are children. And now that they've been home for a while, the house is a mess because children don't really care about cleanliness. They are children. Now, the first dart that hits me is, oh, you've got to be kidding me. It's a mess. I just cleaned this thing. Why? <laughs> or as they say in Hollywood, por qué? <laughs> That's the first dart. That's the... This sucks experience. The second dart is the, is the real problem. Often what we do after that first dart hits us is we start laying down a bunch of judgment on ourselves for why we're feeling what we're feeling. It's the part of us that goes, wait a second, why am I doing, like, why am I angry at my kids right now? My God, I'm a bad mother. I'm seriously getting upset because my perfectly healthy children who are alive, there are people on this planet with children who are starving or maybe people on this planet who would love to be a parent and who have discovered they can't have children or all of these things may be happening and I'm mad that my healthy, bubbling children mess the house up. What kind of a horrible parent am I? Why can't I just let this go? Why am I such a control freak? Why do I need the house to be clean all of the time? Is this maybe something about... And dot, 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 dot. That's the second dart stuff. The first one is the, this sucks. I don't like it. The second part is comes in when it's, you're not allowed to feel like this sucks. You don't deserve to feel angry about this. Your feelings are not appropriate. Your feelings are not valid. The first thing I would say to people who are burned out, and again, this is the downside of burnout, our stress hormones are pumped up to the nines and our ability to deal with that stress is much lower because we don't have the energy. So we feel like we're in survival mode, but we don't have the energy at our disposal to handle the situation in the way that we would ordinarily like. Okay, so then now what? <laughs> Often I say to people, well, have you just tried saying, you know what, this is not okay. This is really crappy. 
but it's okay that it's not okay. I'm allowed to be angry and disappointed and miserable when I have a, like a really messy house and I just clean the damn thing and I don't want to have to clean it again. And I have to anyway. Bummer. <laughs> That's allowed. In uh, Florence and the Machines song, uh, Never Let Me Go, she, there's a beautiful line where she talks about, you know, in the arms of the ocean, I'm, there's a kind of a freedom that comes with that. And it's a metaphor where she just, she goes deeper and deeper and the waves are engulfing her and she's underneath the current now. And she says, I'm not giving up, I'm giving in. So what we're getting at here is I'm not recommending to people, so the solution to your burnout is to go wade out in the ocean and just drown. <laughs> like That'll solve it. What I'm saying is using that as a metaphor, don't give up, but give in a little. Surrender to the experience that you're having. Give yourself your own personal pat on the head that you would give anyone who was in pain and say, you know what, hun? I get it. You're tired. You don't want to have to clean the house again. And you also want to have a clean house. And your kids are kind of being jerks right now. And yes, they're healthy. And yes, you love them. But you don't have to like them all the time. Love them, yes. But you're allowed to not like them. Especially in a pandemic when you have gotten no space from them. So there we have it. Have you tried just simply being okay with not being okay? Can you give yourself that grace? And that's not going to solve the problem, but it might soothe that second dart. You're still going to be in pain from the first one that hit you, but you don't have to keep hitting yourself with increasing measures of pain. Okay, well, that's not really enough, though, because I'm still burned out and miserable, and I don't really want to be burned out and miserable. So now what? The next thing that I can pose is, have you tried doing nothing? Like, nothing. Not resting with purpose, not exercising, just nothing. And maybe nothing means zoning out in front of the TV. Maybe nothing means staring at the ceiling, but just don't do for a minute. Try just being. There's, you know, from the Tao Te Ching saying, I do nothing and 10,000 things get done. Well, why is it that 10,000 things are getting done? It's sort of a reminder that if you suddenly exited this planet, all the things that you think you need to be doing at all hours of the day will get done probably by someone. And if they don't get done, the earth will not cease spinning. Which doesn't mean that you're not a valuable contributing member of society or that you don't have inherent value just by virtue of who you are. It simply means all those things you think are imperative that you do probably are not so imperative after all. Uh, Warren Buffett, I believe, was Warren Buffett. I could be wrong about this. It's the the four quadrant, you know, how do you prioritize your tasks for the day? And there's the urgent, not urgent, important, not important. And so things that are urgent, but not important, delegate. This thing is urgent. It does need to get done, but I don't want to be the person who does it. So I'm going to delegate it out to someone else. So those things, when you're burned out, that you think are so imperative, maybe they're not. Can you delegate some of it? Can you tell your partner, hey, I'd really appreciate it, help me out here? Can you order food in because you're too tired to cook? What are your options? How can you delegate things out? Then there are the things that are urgent or are important, but not urgent. Those are the things you need to schedule. 
because often the th- things of that sort would include exercise, self-care. That's important, but it's not urgent. No one around you is going to say, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, Leah, 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 you need to do some self-care right now. I mean, my body might if I let myself really go to extreme exhaustion, but that's probably not going to happen for a long time. It's important then, but it's not necessarily urgent in the same way I've been trained to think of urgency. Okay, fine. So then I schedule it. I schedule time for exercise or rest or the stronger principles. (laughs) Um, And then there are things, of course, that are urgent and important. And those are the things you do right now. And the concept there is, it's like prioritizing those things that are really important to you and really being discerning about the things that you give your energy to. When you're burned out, sometimes the most important thing you can do is nothing at all. And all of those urgent things that aren't important but probably need to get done, just let them go for a moment. I promise you, you will be far more productive if you give yourself some space. And then this next solution is sort of the part of... um, It it brings me to, I guess I would call it the thesis statement or or the, the thing that all of this gobbledygook that I've been talking about gravitates around. And I didn't mention, I know I talked about in the stronger acronym, that first one was S for spiritual practice or something larger. And that was the thing that I also talked about last week. And people asked, okay, yeah, but what if I don't know what my something larger is? And as I mentioned earlier, I think that's a related question to the, but what happens when I'm absolutely exhausted and I've done all of those things and I'm still exhausted and I still feel like I can't experience positive emotions because I'm impaired. Sometimes that is the moment when what we need is to connect with something that is beyond the jurisdiction of our everyday lives. Maybe that means a conversation with God. Maybe that means a long meditation practice where you connect with that which is untouchable and untainted within you, depending on your belief system and how you connect with that which is larger than yourself. This is part of the reason why research on well-being, I'll say, and when I say well-being, I'll sort of break it down. There's well-being in terms of longevity. You know, generally speaking, if you're very healthy, you'll probably live a long time. And there are areas on this planet where people live a long time in large numbers, <laughs> and they're called blue zones. And so the research in the, uh, on people who tend to live long and live long in groups with other people who also live long often have a community, and more often than not, those communities are faith-based communities. Well, why would this be so helpful? Why is that? And the thing is, that's linked with happiness, So studies in terms of psychological studies, studies on happiness and positive psychology will come back and report people who have connections with faith-based communities often live longer and are happier. So they're happier because they're connected with other humans who have similar values and they get to connect with those people on a regular basis. And those connections produce oxytocin and oxytocin makes us feel good. It also produces serotonin, which makes us feel good. 
Now, on the more physiological side of things in terms of, well, I'm going to live longer. Well, why? Part of it is, again, the kinds of people who have that regular outlet, that regular source of connection with other homo sapiens, are getting that ingredient, that vital ingredient that we all need, and they're getting that need met. And it's a pretty low bar to entry. I don't have to do a whole lot. I don't have to do a lot of thought. I just... I go to my church or I do my meditation or whatever, whatever links me with that thing that makes me feel like I'm connected to something larger than myself. It's kind of been crafted for me. I don't have to make it. That is one way, one source of, of moving toward that something larger and try as they might scientists everywhere who have tried to sort of keep religion and spirituality out of the arena of science and medicine have increasingly had to make a little room for the mysteries of life to come into the hospital wing and to come into the conversation about health and wellness because it's the data supports it it really does come down to the data people who have this connection live longer are healthier have better health outcomes after surgery and so on and so forth. And yes, it helps with burnout because in those moments where you feel like I cannot go any farther, you can look to the sky or look to yourself, whatever it is that has, you know, look to nature when you're on a hike and you're in nature and you feel like this, this is my something larger. This is bigger than me. And I'm a part of this thing and I'm willing to help protect and preserve it. That is a something larger. Ah, here I can vent out all of my angst and my worries and my anxiety and my depression and my sense of hopelessness. And I can say to this thing that's bigger than me, please, I need your help. I can't do this alone and I can't, no one around me can fix this. I need help from someone who's looking at this from a larger vantage point than I am. And there's comfort that comes with that. So in answer to the question, how does one find their something larger or their spiritual practice? Sometimes it can be found in the walls of a church or in the folds of a spiritual text in religion and faith-based communities. It's a pretty easy way or simple way, maybe not easy, but simple way to reach a something larger. But now here's our next challenge. There's plenty of people who have, who are either atheists. So atheists are those who are of the mind that, hey, (laughs) this is it, pal. Like there is no afterlife. There's no big guy in the sky. Like there's nothing out there. I'm not seeing any evidence of that. Uh, Okay, fine. That's, that doesn't mean just because you're an atheist, it's like, well, tough cookies for you. You're going to die and, you know, you're going to have a short life and you'll be miserable. That's not true at all. It just means that you'll have to be much more creative about how you go about finding your sense of something larger or a sense of a spiritual practice. So then, and then there are, of course, those who might have like a love-hate relationship with religion, like an ambivalent relationship with it. I love it, but I hate it. I was born and raised a Catholic and I still do the thing, but I don't agree with a lot of it and it makes me feel uncomfortable and or, you know, insert whatever religion that you may have been born into and all of your experience, like your senses of like, eh, there's a lot in this that I'm not crazy about. And I don't really, I feel ambivalent. I love it, but I hate it. Okay, 
that's okay. If you have, if you either don't believe in religious doctrines or you don't really, or you feel ambivalent about them, so it's not bringing you a sense of comfort, that's fine. Go ahead and let that go. You're something larger. It doesn't have to be a religion. It's just that religion is very convenient and that it kind of does a lot of that work for you. But if you, you can't go there now, as I said, you have to be creative. Well, what does it mean to be creative? <laughs> like, this is now getting into that part that's a little bit into the answer to the question, how does one go about finding your something larger? Where I would begin, and now this is my bias, I've gotten a lot of satisfaction and comfort from studies around Buddhism and yoga uh, and the Tao Te Ching. Like, these are things that have brought me comfort, and they're more philosophical, I think, than they are religious, but they're labeled in many respects as a religion for a number of reasons, but anyway. And one thing, and the reason I'm disclosing this is that a lot, I'm, I want to be clear about where these ideas are not solely my own. <laughs> They're ideas that came from people who are far more intelligent than myself, far more wise, and I've just adopted them because I like them. But one question to, or thing to start with is wherever you are and with who you are. So healing, I'm, I often will report, and which I'm sort of repeating from a, a yogic therapist, if you will, you know, someone who is in the process of healing is typically moving away from, I'm going to get my source of fulfillment from out there. And they're moving toward the philosophy that I'm going to get my source of fulfillment from in here, from within myself. And that doesn't mean that those who, the out there is, you know, like I am my job. I will be happy when. People who are trapped in the I'll be happy when will never get out of that trap because as soon as they, the when occurs, they'll just keep moving the goalpost. So then, okay, I'll be happy when. <laughs> uh, if you can let that go and come to, go toward a space of, I'm going to prioritize <clears throat> my own health and wellness or my sense of satisfaction or my own spiritual, uh, yeah, I guess my own spiritual health on my own. I don't need stuff out there to bring me satisfaction okay, that's all great, but that's still super abstract and that's not going to be helpful for a lot of folks who are hungry for a, a more defined answer. So then these are questions designed to be get closer and closer to the tangible. Like the first thing, what are things that leave you feeling energized when you are done rather than depleted and why? And I, when I say things, I guess what I'm meaning are things that you do, things that you spend your time with, um, what are things that when you are engaged in them, you feel energized? It's sort of like asking what are experiences in your life that feed you in a real way? Maybe it's writing, maybe it's creativity, maybe it's gardening, maybe it's playing video games. I don't know, whatever the thing is that when you're doing them, think about it. What are things that when you're engaged in doing that thing, you leave feeling like you have a little bit more energy than when you started? And now the more important question, why? Why do you think that thing gives you energy? What is it about that thing that energizes you? And no get out of jail free card on this one. A lot of people just want to go, I don't know. Well, think about it. If you love running, why do you love running? Why is it you think that when you're done with that run, you feel like you have more energy than when you started? If you love writing, why do you love writing? What is it? like? Tell me about the experience of writing 
what is it like to sit down and create something that wasn't there and now is there? If it's gardening, if it's walking in nature, if it's whatever it is, be as detailed as you possibly can and describe with as much vivid imagery as you can. What is it about that experience that feeds you? Because if you can answer that question, it might hint at what your something larger really is. So then the next question, what is something you enjoy doing and maybe even feel a little guilty about doing? Because it feels almost selfish to do it. And why? So this again kind of moves into the arena of like the thing that it's like, God, this is so satisfying, but I won't prioritize it until I've done all the rest of the things. This is my dessert. This is the thing that I, that is just for me and no one else is benefiting from it. I mean, in theory, I mean, of course, everyone benefits when you feel good, because when you feel good, you're less of a jerk. And so then there you have it. But it might feel selfish. I, when I'm spending time doing this thing or experiencing this thing, it almost, it feels so luscious. It's almost sinful. And it, I'm even going to let you, you know, anything from playing a game to going for a walk to staring at a wall, even if it's watching rom-com movies, I'll let you, anything counts. It's, but it's got to be both of these, by the way. You got to leave with more energy than when you got there. And it has to be something that you almost feel selfish when you do it because it just feels so dang good. Or maybe another way of coming at this is what is something that you lose time in? And not the hypnotic style, like, I just stared at a screen for five hours. I lost time. Where did it go? And then you kind of get up and you feel a little befuddled. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that experience where you're not doing anything. Something is doing you. I'm not writing. The book is being written and it's being written through me. I'm not running. I'm being run. (laughs) I'm running is happening. I'm just kind of a thing. I'm an outlet for this run to be happening. That's often what people call the runner's high. Um, I'm not gardening. Gardening is happening. That's, it's that shift where you lose yourself, that egoic part of yourself that just kind of starts to dissolve and gets hazy. Your story gets a little less accessible. The, the day-to-day chatter, the monkey mind is quiet during these, maybe it's only small pockets during the day, or maybe it's reliable and that the longer you do it, the quieter your mind gets. It doesn't really matter. But what is that thing? that when you do it, you lose time. And again, why? (laughs) Now, what these things might allude to, or maybe not, I don't know, might be your values. So that brings me to the next piece of, you know, trying to access your something larger. What are your greatest values? Values might mean, uh, like in my case, my highest values include um, personal growth, Health, obviously. My relationships, I value them very much. Um, I, I value curiosity because I feel like curiosity is disarming and rarely leads to, well, I won't say rarely leads to something negative. I will say that curiosity so often will guide people towards something positive. There are negative sources of curiosity. There are negative manifestations of it. You know, being nosy as an example. But f- quite frequently, curiosity can be a pivotal 
at part of our everyday lives. I think Elizabeth Gilbert in her book, Big Magic, said, you know, when people talk about their passions, like find something that you'd be passionate about. She says, my God, that's a tall order, especially when you're burned out. Like, what am I passionate about? I don't have any energy for passion. Who the hell do you think you are with your passion? Passion is a privilege for people who are not burned out and desperate for some release. No, no, no. She says, maybe don't go there so far or so soon. Instead, just simply ask yourself, what are you curious about? What's something that you're like it intrigues you? What's something you don't know about and that you want to know more about? What stirs creativity for you? So there are times when I might be listening to a podcast, and maybe this is you right now, where, you know, it's like, eh, this just isn't something that tickles my curiosity. And I'll turn it off. Whereas there might be something else where it's like, well, that's an interesting thought. Tell me more about that. And it's not like I've suddenly become passionate. Like I'm listening to podcasts about artificial intelligence, And I'm even considering getting a post-bachelor's degree in computer science, not because I'm passionate about computers, but because I'm curious about them, especially as a health coach. I'm seeing how more and more we're starting to move into the direction of using advanced technologies to help facilitate health and wellness, like, you know, a Fitbit that now can track heart rate variability or whoop bands or whatever. And people are starting to use those tools to help uh, get a better sense and to help personalize people's wellness plans. Well, look at that. You, you, you seem to be the most anxious at this time of the day. What's going on there? Why does your heart rate go up? Um, oh, look at that. This is happening to your sleep. Like your sleep is better during this point. What happens to be going on on those days and so on and so forth. And so I'm not passionate about computers. It's not like, oh boy, oh boy, I can't wait to study computer technology because it just really gets my blood flowing but I'm curious. I, I see people who do things on computers and I think, whoa, that looks like magic. And I know it's not. And I know there's an explanation for what you were able to achieve just now with that thing. But I'm curious how you did it because I don't currently know. And I feel like if I know a little bit more, maybe that will help inform so many other aspects of this thing that I'm interested in. And maybe that will guide me to the next cookie crumb. Sort of like, Oh, was it Jack and Jill? No. Wow. Hansel and Gretel. That's what it was. Hansel and Gretel who were following breadcrumbs to try and get home. It's like, well, this will lead me to that one, which will lead me to that, which will lead me to that. So your something larger doesn't have to be prepackaged and complete. <laughs> like it doesn't have to be completed. It can just be something that you're curious about. That may not suddenly swoop you off your feet and move you into the arena of something bigger than yourself, but it gets you out of yourself for maybe just long enough to get a breath of air. So don't worry so much if you feel like you don't have your spiritual practice or something larger. Start smaller, especially when you're burned out. For Pete's sake, are you kidding? What's something that piques your curiosity? What's something that is just just enough to scratch an itch. (laughs) Um, And then what brings you joy? You know, what is something that when you do it the last time, even if you haven't felt it in a while, because again, you're burned out and you, you don't quite know where your source of joy is. When was the last time you remember feeling joyful? And what was going on during that time? Another thing you can say is, 
And if that sort of feels way too far away, maybe now go into the area of other people. Like, who are your heroes? Who are the people that you think are just, man, I want to be like that guy, or I want to be like that woman. I want to be like that person. What are the qualities about that person that really um, attract you to them? What are the qualities about that person that you want to emulate yourself? Because So if you don't know what your personal values are, and therefore don't know how to live a life of value, that live a life in alignment with those values, because you don't know, and again, you're exhausted, maybe just push pause for a second and ask, who are the people that you personally admire? And what is it about them that you admire so much? And what are the things that they are doing now or have already done that you would dearly love to emulate? That will give you some clues. Because maybe you don't know what your something larger is. But maybe they knew what their something larger was. And maybe without realizing it, it's, it's cluing you into what yours could be. You know, it could be a politician. It could be a writer. You know, some of my heroes include Eleanor Roosevelt. And she didn't run for president, but she was given an opportunity as the president's wife to be a part of making the world a better place. And she took that opportunity. And the things that I love about her, I mean, she was an extreme introvert. She hated being in the public eye, at least according to her own words. And for her, it was a sense of, ah, that might be true, but I'm just going to do it anyway. And I think that's really admirable. And so that's part of what I want to channel within myself. You know, when I want to go to networking events or when I want to try and lead workshops or do something that gets me out of my comfort zone, I think of people like Eleanor, who that wasn't their comfort zone. That wasn't what she necessarily wanted to be doing. But nevertheless, she saw an opportunity and she said, well, this world needs cleaning up. (laughs) This world needs someone to help it along. And I'm in a really good position to do that. And so I'm going to go ahead and get the job done. And maybe it won't be perfect, but I'm going to do it anyway. And maybe I'll be exhausted at the end of it, but it'll be worth it. I mean, man, talk about admirable. (laughs) And people like Elizabeth Gilbert, who, you know, traveled the world and did things on her own terms, not because she wanted to go and save the world. In fact, in many of her, you know, books and so on, she'll say in Big Magic as an example, she says, oh God, please don't, don't ask the question how you can help me. Please don't help me. So many of us really don't want your help. Do the thing that makes you come alive. And then by virtue of you doing that thing, people will be hungry to emulate you. You know, just by virtue of coming alive in your own space, you will light up your small corner of the world and provide a little bit more joy for other people. Not because you forced people to be joyful or you said to them, I'm going to bring you joy, but you simply said, I'm going to live a life of joy and I'm going to do that in this tiny little corner. And just by doing that, you've lit up your little corner and that's, well, made the world a little less dark. And that in and of itself is valuable. Um, I think Passenger said in his song, if we all light up, we can scare away the dark. You know, it's like, do that thing that lights you up. Or as, you know, Howard Thurman said, and again, this is even on my business card. I love his quote so much. But, you know, don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive. Because what this world really needs is more people who have come alive. So when thinking about your something larger... A lot of people 
think, well, I've got, it's got to be God or it's got to be a faith-based community. It sure can. In many ways, that will make things a lot easier because um, you don't have to create and, you know, weave together your own sense of meaning and purpose, but you don't have to. It's a beautiful thing if you have a good relationship with it. But if you have an ambivalent one, oh God, no, don't go. <laughs> That's funny. God, no. <laughs> Sorry. I cracked myself up. You can also take more of an existentialist approach, which is more the life has no inherent meaning, but that doesn't make it meaningless. You have to find your own meaning in this world. Some of us, that's our path and that's okay. The question then becomes, well, how do I find my something larger? How do I find that sense of meaning and purpose? How do I find my spiritual practice? You find it one step at a time by, you know, sewing this part of the tapestry and then this one and then this one by following one breadcrumb and then another and then another by asking tough questions and by will it being willing to experiment and by being willing to fall on your face and for it not to be a big deal. Your something larger doesn't have to be meaningful for everyone else. It only has to be meaningful for you. What is that thing that feels like it's a higher jurisdiction than yourself? Your something larger could simply be, I am seeing an opportunity for this part of the world to be a little bit better. And here's how I think I can contribute. It can be something as simple as, I just want to make the world, I want to leave whatever space I occupy in this world a little bit shinier, a little bit cleaner, a little bit tidier than when I found it. And that's a hell of a something larger. That's valuable. You don't have to shake the mountaintops. All you've got to do is maybe sweep the tiny little corner that you slept in around your tent on the way up there. (laughs) That's it. So at the end of all of this, what I'm hoping is that there was some value for you as you're trying to think what your something larger might be. I will tell you that for me, my something larger is tied up with my values. So that's something I can offer from my own self. And I can tell you that when... I'm looking around for my something larger. Like, what is the thing that even when I'm exhausted and even when I'm burned out and the heaviest version of sad, like, I can remember a time in my life when I don't even know. It was so difficult, it's hard to put wrap words around. And I think the reason why when I was this burned out, it was as difficult for me to get through as it was was because my life wasn't really all that bad. That's the worst. Sometimes, ironically, during times of strife, when everyone around you are also feeling the pinch, it can be a little less... It's still painful, but there's not quite as much suffering because there's at least some congruence there. So in my case, I can recall I was in grad school and I was working full-time and... I know I've made mention of this before, but I just remember lying in bed and I, I cried myself to a to an almost sleep because I wasn't getting any sleep. I didn't fully have as good an understanding at the time of what it meant to be have a... Like, I didn't understand that I was a highly sensitive person, which isn't an all-encompassing identity. But I guess what I'm saying is I didn't comp- really fully understand how this spacesuit that I'm living in, that is my body, how it worked. And because of that, I was trying to live my life in accordance with what other people were capable of, rather than looking at my own system and trying to be a bit more 
shall, shall I say nuanced with regard to how I went about navigating the world. I was a little less interested. Like I, I didn't have the tough conversation with myself personally. I just was going to go do the thing because it feels good to do the thing. It feels good to achieve things. So there I was, I was doing all the things, you know, going to grad school, working full time. I was, I was keeping myself, my nose to the grindstone. I was working hard, baby, but I'd been doing it for years and I'd been dealing with insomnia and anxiety because you cannot be anything but anxious if you can't get sleep. And it's hard to get sleep when you're anxious. And so it's a vicious cycle. And I, after, you know, I peeled myself out of bed and said, okay, well, I know that when I move my body, (laughs) that feels better than when I don't. And I just remember running and I had a song playing in my ear. Uh, I think it was, God, what was the song? Matt Kearney, uh, Let It Rain. I think. No, it wasn't even let it rain. Um, sooner or later. That's what it was. Sooner or later, we're going to make it. We're going to make it. And it, it was the type of music. It was the right lyrics for the time. And as I'm running, tears are streaming down my face. And I just remember looking up at the sky and just collapsing, like on my knees. There was no one around. And I, I just cried. I had, I had nothing. I had absolutely nothing. I just, I, If you had asked me at that time, well, what is your something larger? I would have just told you, man, I'm running on empty. I got nothing. And somehow though, something in myself that didn't have a voice yet. So it's not like, you know, when people write books or or talk about some voice that comes online within ourselves and tells us you can do it. It was just a simple action. I just remember the tears kept going and I got back up. And I said, I'm just going to keep running. I'm just going to keep moving. That's all I can do right now. I can make this step go in front of this step, which goes in front of this step. And I just kept doing that thing. And so for me, that something larger was simply trying to get to a space that was a little less bad. I'd say my something larger at that time was to take care of myself. But not the myself, just in the realm of take care of your physical body. That was in there. But it was a a desire to nurture something that was intangible. It was just a, I can't do any of these other things, but here's one thing I can do. I can put one foot in front of the other, in front of the other, and I can breathe. Breathe in, breathe out, (laughs) breathe in, thump, 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 breathe out, thump, thump, thump. And when I got back in, I sat down and I wrote in my journal and that felt good. It felt a little less bad. I was writing poetry and I was channeling all of this out and I didn't quite know what my something larger was because I didn't have the headspace for that. But now looking back at it, the something larger was a conversation with something intangible inside of myself, this willingness to take care of me. I was willing to parent me. I was willing to In that moment, I wasn't being mean to me. I wasn't saying, dang it, Leah, get off your feet, do the thing. It didn't feel like violence. It didn't feel like a, you know, mean mommy. It was the voice of a parent who said, oh, honey, you got this. I know it's hard, baby. I know, but you can do this. You can do this next thing. And the, you know, the journaling and the running and then 
I went downstairs and I made myself a healthy meal, but it wasn't because I was sure that the healthy meal would fix it or that the run was going to make it better or that the journaling was medicine. It was all in service to, and for me, again, this comes back to my something larger, <clears throat> the sense of health and wellness. It's, um, for me, health is linked back to the word whole, to feel whole. And it was my something larger is, you know, how do I live a whole life? How do I make, you know, go about the business of living a life that is wholesome? And it's almost like it's, you know, we only get one precious life one precious life that we know of, that I know of. And so I kind of feel like I owe this exceptional experience a certain amount of gratitude. This life I'm living is my something larger. Like there's so much magic in every experience. And I think in that moment too, I was able to just surrender to feeling miserable. And it was okay that I was miserable. It was sort of like, it's okay that you feel like shit, honey do you want to go on a run with me? And it's like, yeah, why not? Let's do that. Oh, okay. Do you feel better now? Not really. <laughs> okay, sweetie. Do you want to maybe sit down and write in your journal? Yeah, sure. Let's try that. Oh, okay. Like there's something within me that it wasn't what I was doing. It was the relationship I had with each of these things that I was striving to do. And so I was trying to create a relationship with that thing inside of myself that is intangible, that it seems to be unaffected by whatever experiences I'm having. And I just figured if I keep moving in that direction, if I keep, you know, striving toward that thing that I can't name yet, I have a little bit of faith that at least I won't feel worse. Um, it, it's worth it to do this thing because if nothing else, at least I'm taking care of this precious life and I'm miserable and I'm sad and I'm tired, but I'm still grateful because only I can feel these things and I've got an opportunity here. I'm not saying that that's going to fix your challenge. I'm not saying to all of you out there, oh, so here's the thing I'm going to tell you to do when you're burned out. I'm going to tell you to go on a run. <laughs> like, I mean, maybe that will help you. I don't know. I think what I'm trying to get at is whatever it is you, you experiment with, whatever breadcrumb that you've got, when you answer the question, what are the things that make you feel like things suck less? What are the things that give you a sense of joy? Or what are the things that when you do them, you lose time? What is it that helps nourish you? When I'm asking these questions, I think the important thing, it's not what you say, it's your why that's important. When I say, what is it that makes you lose time? And why do you think that is? What is it about that thing you love so much? Because for me, with writing, I love to write in my journal because those are the moments where wisdom I didn't know I even had inside of myself come forth. That's a cool experience. Like some part of my me, if you even want to call it me, knows stuff. And I've got a relationship with that practice that feels so good. And going to the journal like that, that doesn't feel like a to-do list item. I don't have a tyrant inside of me that says, oh, you must journal. With work, with workouts, there's a little bit of that in there. But anyway, the important thing when you're trying to find your why, I guess is what I'm saying, is to not just look for the thing that you can access and appeal to that's outside of your jurisdiction. It also should be something that doesn't elicit the response of your inner critic 
or your inner tyrant. (laughs) It's that thing that when you're doing it, the critic shuts down and it helps facilitate those kinder conversations for yourself. It's part of why I think faith-based communities are so powerful. When you're appealing to a God, most of the time we are humble when we pray. We say to our God, please help me. I'm small and I'm tired and I just want to do the right thing and I need help. That humility, that sense of, I can't go it alone. I can't do this. I can't do this in the same way. Oh, and the feeling that you have when you're talking to this God is there's a relief that comes with that because for these brief moments, there's someone bigger than you that can help you that's stronger than you, who can help carry you. And if you don't have that connection, I mean, I certainly have a very ambivalent relationship with religion, but I see the value of it. That's what you're looking for. You're looking for that thing that when you're engaged in it or when you're experiencing it or when you're doing it, the inner critic is shut down. It's not about completing another to-do list item. It's one little pocket of your life that is gentle, that just feels good for its own sake, and that leaves your slice of reality a little shinier than when you got there. So yeah, that's it. It was a long one this time, folks. I'd apologize, but I'm not really sorry. My podcast, (laughs) I can make it forever if I want to. (laughs) Oh no, but seriously, I hope this was helpful. As always, if you have questions or concerns, uh, you can email me at leah at thehealthysensitive.com. You can find me on my website, www.thehealthysensitive.com. Uh, I do have events that are coming up on Eventbrite. I will make mention of that in the future. You can also find upcoming events on my events page on my website at www dot the healthy sensitive.com. Just in case you didn't get that again, the healthy sensitive.com. Okay, then. Uh, I hope you had a fabulous holiday. I hope you wish you a very happy new year. And uh, may the time you spent with me today in this podcast, whenever you may have heard it, uh, make you feel a little less bad. And I hope your day is a little shinier than when you started this thing. (laughs) Take good care. Bye.